Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can hide Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 22nd. This should be episode 78 if I remember properly. And as always, uh, this podcast is conducted from my personal mobile studio as I commute the 50 miles between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. This podcast in particular in the morning. As always, I'd like to preface this show with the fact that it is indeed one man's opinion. And even though sometimes people comment on my blog, and I certainly allow their comments to stand uh, and try to insinuate otherwise, no, this is one man's opinion. And uh, that's what I give, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today as I open up the subject and explain why I feel certain ways about certain issues and how we maybe need to focus on other things. It's not so much what you really think about these other issues that are thrown up in our faces and used to divide us. Um, Kind of getting into the show today, what I really want to talk about is uh, a financial mess that's waiting for us. And as I've said on other shows where I talk about economics and finance or indoor politics, and the two always seem to blend because politicians have a great deal of influence on how the economics in our nation and in the world work. I know that a lot of you tune in because you want to know how to better store food, which food to store, how to do things with alternative energy, and all these other things, and we do talk about those. I try to make the show well-rounded and diverse. It's not going to be a gun show. It's not going to be a recipe show. It's not going to be a food storage show. It is meant to be the survival podcast, which means identifying, anticipating, and responding to threats. All right. And what I'm going to lay out today is what I believe is the single biggest financial threat in the world today. And very few, if any, people are actually talking about it. And if you've heard about it at all in mainstream media, they've brought in one economics guy that sort of explained it in a way that sort of made sense. And then he went away, and then the problem just seems to not really be that important. It can't be because no one talks about it. And the way the guy explained it made it probably pretty difficult to understand. And so since it's not understood, it's not worried about, and it can't be that big a deal. My point is it's a big deal. It's a huge deal, and it has the power to act like, in the words of Warren Buffett, who is one of the smartest financial minds in the world, to act like a financial weapon of mass destruction. Financial nuclear war, folks. That's that's what this thing represents. And it's the, the problem with it is the, the first shot fired will not be a shot that anybody wants to fire. Something will happen, uh, kind of like if you remember the old movie War Games, it's kind of like that nuclear war scenario where the computers were going to launch all the missiles at each other. All right. In this case, instead of launching missiles at each other, what we need is just certain uh, companies to go into default into a way in which they cannot be propped up, and it will cause a, a domino effect, a chain reaction that will then spread throughout the entire derivatives market. And I've mentioned this number before, and it's hard to get your head around. But it is a quadrillion dollar problem. Now what you need to understand 
is that that exceeds by almost a thousand times the gross domestic product or the total financial output of the world on an annual basis. It's monopoly money. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's something that, that, that's been used to create money out of nothing. It's an entire black market economy that's being used to run our world and our world corporations today of counterfeit money that doesn't exist. This is this money's more counterfeit. I've talked about the Federal Reserve before. Since we have new listeners today, I'll fill you in real quick on this. But you can go back and listen to my other shows on the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is about as federal as Federal Express. All right. Federal Reserve is not part of the government. It's a private entity made up of private banks. All of our money comes from the Federal Reserve banking system. Our government issues notes to the bank. The banks then issue dollars as notes back to the public. That's why if you hold up a dollar and look on it, it says this note is legal tender. It's a note from a bank. That dollar comes with interest. Right now, the Federal Government, uh, the Federal Reserve, I'm sorry, has pumped trillions of dollars into the economy this year. The $700 billion bailout is a tiny little piece. There's been the AIG takeover where the Fed pumped a bunch of money in there. Just yesterday, just yesterday, the Fed pumped an additional $500 billion into the banking systems. $500 billion. All right, that's five hundred billion that you and I and your neighbor have to pay interest on. That's monopoly money. The only way that five hundred billion gets any value is it sucks its value from the other money. What I mean by that is when I issue a new dollar, it pulls a little bit of value from every other dollar in the economy to itself, and that makes every dollar worth less. It's like a reverse split in a stock. You have a thousand shares of Exxon at a hundred dollars a share. Exxon does a stock split. And now you have 2,000 shares, all right? But your shares are worth uh, $500 a share, which is ridiculous. Let me put different numbers on that. You have 1,000 uh, shares of Exxon at $100 a share. All right, Exxon decides the share price is too high. They do a split. You now have 2,000 shares of Exxon at $50 a share. Everything's good for you. When we put more money into the money supply, it's like Exxon splitting the stock, driving the value down to $50 by pulling value from the other stock that's on the market, but you don't get more. You don't get more shares. You still have your 1000 and you just have the value decrease by 50%. That's exactly what happens when we issue money. Well, we just put $500 billion into the economy yesterday. No one's talking about it because the, the Congress didn't vote on it. The President didn't act. Nobody in our government did anything because we've assigned this power to these assholes since 1913. So $500 billion into the banking system. All right. And even when we do talk about we're not talking about the real reason this is happening. What you have now is the people running the economy of the world, the world banks, the central banks throughout the world, realize now that they're sitting on this derivative time bomb. Right? And I want to make sure people understand what a derivative is and how it works. This is not your mathematical derivative that you learned in high school. You're sitting here and, oh, go out. I don't want to hear factor, sign, this, that. No, because I, I can't do that stuff, folks. But I do understand how this works. A derivative is basically a bet. 
In fact, there was a law being debated, a bill being debated, that if it had gone into law, would have made derivative trading in the 1990s, as recently as the 1990s, illegal as a form of gambling. That's fact, that's true. I'll give you a link, you can go look at the fact that that did actually happen. What happened was, uh, at the time, head of the Fed, Greenspan, stood up and said, no, 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 this isn't gambling, this is, this is good. Derivative trading it, it will create stability in the marketplace. Uh, it will create unfounded new amounts of wealth. And it's good for everybody, and we need to do it. And with his backing, that, that bill was killed, and derivative trading became mainstream, and it began to grow at an exponential rate. So what is a derivative? A derivative is something that's basically created by a bet between two entities. And a, a credit default swap is the most common form of derivative. Now, before these big words get to you, Give me a minute. I'll make this all make sense to you. Let's say that you are a corporation. We're going to call you U-Corp. Now, you need money to operate your payroll, to do business with, um, to expand your business with, to do exploration of doing businesses in other countries, day-to-day expanding and growth operations of your company. So one of the things that you do is you go public and you start selling stock. And when people buy stock, that money goes into your company. Okay, and you're now able to take that money and use it to run your corporation with. But that's not enough money. You want to grow your business even bigger. So you go to your bank and you get an extended line of credit. And the bank says, okay, we'll give you X amount of dollars. And then you look at that and you look at your investor's money and you say that's still not enough for all the things that we want to do. So the next thing that you'll do is you'll go out and you'll sell bonds. All right, This is where you'll raise funds from sources other than conventional bank loans, but you'll agree to pay the money back with a specified amount of interest. A lot of times it's in the neighborhood of 6% right now. All right, Or at least it was. So what happens is that that anybody, be it a bank or a private citizen or another company, can now buy one of your bonds. All right. So let's say you issue a million dollars in bonds. That brings a million dollars of cash into your entity. All right. And now you have to pay back the bonds as they reach maturity and as they are cashed in. At the same time, the people that bought your bonds may be selling them and trading them amongst themselves. It doesn't matter. Your debt against the bond is constant. You owe a million dollars times 6% interest for the duration of the term and the compounding and whatever goes with those bonds. Now, the people that bought the bonds, maybe they bought a half a million dollars worth of U-Inc. bonds, your company's bonds. And they say, you know what? These are not FDIC-insured investments. In fact, in some ways, these have more risk than stock. They supposedly have a guaranteed return, but if the company doesn't have the money, they can't pay on the bond. Right? If they run out of cash, it's over. We get nothing. In comes the derivative salesman. The derivative salesman says, how would you like to insure your investments? You say, well, my investment is for a half a million dollars in bonds, but by the time this is over with, they're supposed to pay me $750,000 back. So I'm insuring anywhere between a half a million to $750,000. How much will it cost me to insure that money? And my only profit is two fifty, so it better be less than that. And I say, you know what, I'll insure that for um, $100,000. And this is a five-year deal, so uh, $20,000 a year. 
and if the company defaults, I will cover the default. Alright? So basically we're making a bet. I'm betting for your 100000 that that company's not going to default on its bonds and it is going to pay its bills. You're betting the same thing, but you're hedging your bet and saying if they default, I get my money back less 100000 So I've now taken my profit from two fifty down to $150,000 in profit by this bond investment, but I've insured my investment for the full 150000 in profit and the $500 underlying, right? That's why it makes sense for me to do it. Why does it make sense for you to do it, if you're, or not for you, for the third party to do it, if he's selling the derivative insurance, basically? Well, because most of the time, companies don't go broke and they pay their bills. So he just got $100,000 to do absolutely, positively nothing. Now, as soon as you do that, you look at it and you go, wow, we could do a lot more of this. And the more times we do it, the more cash we put into a bank, the more leverage we have, and the more we can do this again and again and again. So that's how this derivative thing started. Because I think you can realize that you're basically creating an asset out of nothing. Because let's say you're insuring your house. How is it different from insuring your house? Let's say your house is worth $100,000. You buy insurance to cover your house for loss up to $100,000. If your house is burned down, the insurance company steps up and pays you the $100,000. And you can rest pretty assured, unless you have like a Hurricane Katrina that wipes out a city, that your insurance company is going to have the money and make good on it because it's highly regulated. And for every dollar that an insurance company issues in insurance, they have to have a specific amount of dollars in reserve. All right. In other words, they're regulated a lot like banks used to be anyway. Far more secure than a bank. All right. So I have to have a certain amount of cash on hand to pay defaults as an insurance company if anybody out there needs my money. I have to be able to cover a certain percentage of loss. In other words, if 10% of all the people that I insure need the money at the same time, I have to be able to cover at least that. So that system works well with insurance. The problem with derivatives is there's no law that requires that. So how much derivative insurance can you issue as AIG? As much as you can find. All right? As much as you can find. So what happens? These derivatives get done over and over and over again. In other words, I go out this time and now I'm talking about a billion dollars in corporate bonds. And to insure that billion, I get a hundred million. I'm now holding a derivative with a value of a hundred million dollars. I now go out and I purchase a derivative insurance policy against my hundred million for ten million. The holder of that one goes out and he does it against the ten million for a million. We've now created seven times the amount in supposed assets out there. And every company that's holding one of these contracts takes it, puts it on their balance sheet, and calls it an asset, even though all it is is a bet. All right? And then that company goes out 
and has people that are buying stock or buying bonds in the company itself with that derivative sitting on their balance sheet, all right, now now, now I'm buying, you've got to say that it was hard, but just try to follow this, and you follow it for one or two layers, and you realize it just keeps going. And some of these things are leveraged 60 to 1. But now you, Inc., is sitting there, and you've bought your own derivative policy, and you have it sitting on your balance sheet for being worth a million dollars. I'm your stockholder, and part of what I'm spending on you to buy stock in you is based on the fact that you supposedly have a million dollars in assets that aren't real. They're fake. They're created through this derivative pyramid scheme. But now I'm not comfortable, so I go out and I get a different type of derivative. I get a derivative that actually is a little bit regulated, that's on the open stock market. I buy an option to sell your stock for just a little bit under its value now, so that if your stock drops through the floor that I can guarantee myself a certain amount of money in that option. That's another type of derivative. And then there's all these other types of derivatives and forms of derivatives with limited or no regulation whatsoever. And they just keep compounding themselves. And what you end up with is a company whose entire balance sheet is made up of derivative value. Then another company has complete derivative value held against. This is a house of cards. So, why did the Fed step in and save AIG's ass? Because it was one of the key cards in this derivative quadrillion dollar mess. And that if AIG had been allowed to fail, the billions of dollars in faced up front insurance that it offered were not the problem. They were the detonator. That once that fell, that all of these phony popped up derivatives, all these fake balance sheets all over the world would begin to fall. And once this little clump over here falls, boom, we've now seen reality. There's no money there. It's fake money. It's electronic funds that do not exist that are being used to buy, sell, trade, and pay employees to create dollars that are not there. And when that clump falls, boom, every little clump attached to it, boom, 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 they go down. Then everything attached to them, boom, 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 down. And it's like a giant expanding little pile of mushroom clouds that eventually circle the entire globe and indeed are a financial weapon of mass destruction. What the hell do we do? Well, i got to tell you that based on the way the world's responding to this mess, and trust me, the people with the money understand the mess because they created it. They were making so much money off of this because it was like having a legal printing press for money in your basement. You just printed up more money anytime you wanted. They start, the, the business world started playing the game the same way the banks were. That created the investment bank business model. That's where all this crap came from. And now it's a debt, in the words of Lyndon LaRouche, it's a dead stinking fish. But now it's a rotting corpse that we have to deal with, and while it's there, it has the potential to kill us all. The good news? The world is putting its money into the dollar. 
Why? Because after they all looked at us and thumbed their noses, our stock market started to melt down. They started looking at their own economies. And they realized, hey, you know what? We did this too. We're in deep shit. The United States isn't sitting on a quadrillion dollars of derivative time bomb. The world is. So they started looking around and they went, you know all this money we're pulling out of the U.S.? Um, maybe we need to put it back in there because one thing about the United States is they have an abundance of natural resources. They have an abundance of wealth. They have an intelligent population that's able to get things done. They have a manufacturing capacity. And they have the most power from the standpoint of being able to subsist on their own of any nation on the planet. And that when you look at China and India with a billion people, that the biggest asset they have is their manpower, but if there's a meltdown, the manpower goes crazy and starts killing each other. So the safest place that foreign investors are seeing for their money right now is the U.S. dollar. That's why you're seeing the dollar rebound right now, even though the stock market's duck shit. All right, because these little ups and downs, we're still trading under $10,000, and don't look for that to go up anytime soon. Retail numbers are going to come out, continue to come out, or are already starting to come out, that show bad to worse. And we're going to see it continue. The, the market's not done dying yet. But it's still better to have your money right now in the mind of the world in dollars than euros, or yen, or real. Okay, or rupees, or anything else. It's still the best place for your money, or at least a good place for a portion of your money. If you're a super wealthy person, maybe you're now chopping your money up into dollars, pounds, and euros, and that's where you feel safest, or maybe dollars and pounds only, or maybe dollars and Australian dollars. All right? But the lion's share is coming here. It's pushing the value of the dollar back up in spite of the fact that the Fed keeps issuing more money. Now, that can only go on so long, it's going to drive it back down. But this derivative thing, they're still doing it. It's still happening every day. In fact, there's people that are betting on the big crash. They're, they're, they're holding massive amounts of derivatives in the belief that when the crash comes, they make out like a bandit because they are holding... What they did is... Uh, this multi-layered thing is what makes this complicated. You're holding a derivative, okay... To ensure your investment on bonds. But what you decide to do is you don't want to hold that derivative anymore. You're going to sell it for cash because you need cash now. So I buy your derivative for a very big discount. But if you would have lost, now you take the loss and I get your insurance. There's people holding massive amounts of derivatives like that. In both the stock market, in the corporate swap market, in all of these places, people are holding derivatives. And they're making money. As this bear market tumbles things down, they're making out like a bandit. What, what they need to realize as well, though, is when it all comes down, nobody pays anybody anymore. That's what started to happen. The banks stopped sending money to each other. You know this big bailout we just got sold? And here's what the president told us, and here's what the government told us, and here's what your your shitty congressman, if he, if he sold you out and voted for this thing, and your shitty senator said. Well, here's what happened, folks. Um, uh, for some unknown reason that, that none of us really get to blame for, uh, other than the other guy, um, interest rates were artificially low, and people that should not have been allowed to buy houses were. And because of that, we had the subprime mortgage mess, but it's worse than that, because it wasn't just subprime loans, it was all these adjustable rate loans and all these other things. And what's happened now is 
cascading effect. As one homeowner can't pay his mortgage and his house gets sold at a discount, it brings down the value of the other homes around them. People are upside down in their mortgages. They continue to default. And all of these bad mortgages are the root of the problem. And if we didn't have that, the problem would go away. So we'll take $700 billion. We'll go in and we'll infuse the system with that $700 billion. And we'll take away this mess created by the defaulted loans. They didn't tell you is that the defaulted loans were $200 billion. It's face value. All the loans in default in the United States could be paid off today for $200 billion. What do they need $700 billion for? To keep the money flowing. Why do they need to keep the money flowing? Why? I'll tell you why. Because what happened is all these banks understand this derivatives monster a lot better than I do, a lot better than you do. And hopefully you understand it enough to now to know how big of a deal it is. Imagine their fear. And what Bank of America is doing, they look out and they go, okay, if an AIG fails or any of these other companies fail, one more big bank fails, and if the Fed doesn't come in and save them, then everybody's going to know. And then this derivative, boom, 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 is going to happen. When it does, the only money that's going to be worth anything to me is the money inside of my bank. The dollars in my bank. If I loan it to you, okay, Frost Bank, and this thing hits, boom, I'm never seeing it come back to me. It'll be gone. It won't exist because it's phony in the first place. You'll keep it because you'll have no choice. You'll only have the money that's in your bank because you, Frost Bank, have loaned money off to Sovereign Bank. You're not getting your money back, so I'm not getting my money back. Right? It's the classic thing with the old, you know, old thing with a bookie. I'll pay you as soon as somebody pays me. Right? I can't pay you because I don't have the money because they owe me the money. That's what the banks were seeing coming because of this derivative thing. So the banks stopped lending money to each other. That was the truth. The, the lie was the reason that they did it. They didn't do it because Joe down the street from you is a dumbass and bought a $500,000 a year, uh, $500,000 house and his household income is $82,000 a year and his balloon payment is coming up and he can't refinance and now he's going to lose his house. That's not why Bank of America wouldn't loan money to Frost Bank anymore. They wouldn't loan money to Frost Bank anymore because they were afraid that one of these, another one of these big investment conglomerates was going to come down, or two would come down, or three would come down all at the same time, and throwing money at the problem would no longer make it go away, and the derivative mushroom cloud would hit, and would destroy the entire global economy in one fell swoop, and the only thing with any value would be the dollars in-house. So we can't let money go out. We'll borrow it from anybody stupid enough to give it to us. Because we know if this hits, we're not paying it back. But we're not giving it to anybody because we know they're not paying it back. So when they said, oh, you can't go get a loan right now, and people went, I went and got a loan. Well, they give it to you. Because the bank trusts that you will pay it back if there's any way possible. The bank knows that you have a true underlying asset, your house. That long term, that piece of property is worth something. It's the only place they can get a return of investment with any security right now. So banks are still lending money to people with good credit and good income that want to buy fairly valued property. 
Right now, if you are in that situation, you can get a loan, no problem. But when Bank of America, right, phones up, you know, another big bank and says, um, we'd like $100 million this week and we'll pay it back next week. Even though that's happened a million times in the past, that other bank's going, yeah, I don't think so. Because this week could be the week that this thing hits. That's what seized up the credit market. Interbank lending. The truth. The cause. Fear of this derivatives bubble. Not what we were told. So everybody blames the CEO at Goldman Sachs. And blames Joe, who bought a house he couldn't afford. And no one realizes this entire shadow economy is what's really causing this. So what's going to be the result of this thing? Well, at some point, the clowns across the world are going to have to realize that, just as the United States and the Soviet Union did at some point, that having this much uh, ability to destroy the entire planet doesn't make sense and start to dismantle the arsenal. It'll have to be slow. It can't be done overnight because it's a quadrillion dollars. And if you do it overnight, you could cause the chain reaction to happen anyway. What they're going to have to do is is limit new derivatives, let things come to maturity, and pander out. It's going to be part of this greater depression that we're experiencing the beginning of right now. That's if they're smart. If they're stupid, they're going to keep trying to play this game and make the problem bigger. And right now, it looks like they're stupid, and they're going to keep trying to play this game and make the problem bigger. One way or another, this thing has to end. And when it does, the hard times that that come with it will be headed right down the throats of the people that didn't understand it and didn't have anything to do with it, you and me. What it's going to do is create a situation where the Fed has to pump, and the, not just our Fed, but everybody's Fed, everybody's central bank, is going to have to start firing up printing presses and printing money and printing money and printing money and printing money. When they do, we're going to get hyperinflation. And we're going to have global hyperinflation. And you will be paying more for everything. So anything that's a hard material asset that has long duration use for you right now, if you have cash, now's the time to buy it. That's why a lot of this show we talk about things like storing food. But I'm talking about everything now. Chainsaws, guns, ammo, um, you name it. If it's, a, if it's something you can buy that would be a, you know, a lifetime purchase, I'd look at getting it now if there's any way that you can. If it's in your plan for the next five years to own it. Because that's going to be a safer investment than any investment vehicle if this thing explodes. Is there a way that it can be avoided? Not completely. It will take a generation to clean out this corruption, at minimum, if we get serious about it right now. But we can prevent the complete explosion. What would have to happen is that the world governments would have to agree on a ceiling to currencies. In other words, the United States would say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have $14 trillion in circulation, and that's it. There will never be any more. Unless there's a significant rise in our production capacity and our people. And it will be absolutely fixed to that metric. And we cannot just add money or take money away at will. It's a fixed value. And every other major financial power in the world would have to get on board with that plan. And if they did, there would be some growing pains. There would be some shifting pains. But eventually what would happen is everything would settle out and inflation would stop. Because things wouldn't go up in price anymore. Because the value of your money would not go down. That's what most people don't realize. Our society is not a place where the cost of things goes up. 
He said, what are you talking about? Of course the cost of things goes up. Health care, gas, medical insurance, homes, everything goes up in price. It doesn't go up in price. The value of the money goes down. So it costs more money to buy the same thing. And you might say, well, how the hell is that different? It's immensely different. Because in one model, there's nothing that can be done about it. And that's the inflation market. And what I mean by that is if you have $100,000 a mat- on your mattress, then in 10 years your $100,000 is now worth $70,000 or $60,000. It only buy what you know $60,000 would have bought when you stuck the $100,000 under your mattress. That means price didn't go up. The value of your money went down. In the other model, where price goes up, where real price increases happen, your 100000 would mostly buy the same thing it would have bought 10 years ago. It doesn't go down in value. One or two items that became rarer would just appreciate in value. So... You know, uh, something like a Picasso painting might appreciate in value. But the cost of building, manufacturing, delivering, selling, marketing an automobile would be constant. The cost of health care insurance, right, would be constant. The price of all these things would be constant if we had a ceiling to our currency. But without a ceiling to our currency, we can just keep throwing more money in. And again, every time a dollar comes in, it sucks, it sucks value from its brothers. Now, I wish I could tell you exactly what to do about this. And other than reduce your cost of living, increase your income, continue to do the things that we talk about here on the show all the time, Try to find that place that you want to live the rest of your life. Convert it from home to homestead. Make it produce for you. Buy the tangible assets that you expect to be lifelong or at least long-term purchases. Get some of your money, at least some of your money, out of high-risk investments. Continue to save money. Do not save all your money in tax-deferred accounts. Put some money there. They're a good vehicle. They're part of a balanced portfolio. Put some of your money into, you know, do stage CD investing, for God's sakes. Go to a company like AIG, all right? Buy... A, take if you had $10,000 to invest there, but you don't want to tie it all up for three years. But you want the CD rate that comes in three years. Right? Because you get more for a three-year CD than a one-year CD. Buy a one-year CD with a third of your money. Buy a two-year CD with a third of your money. And buy a three-year CD with a third of your money. When the one-year CD comes to maturity, take the money and reinvest it all and buy a three-year CD. Your two-year CD not only has a year left, all right? Your three-year CD not only has two years left. Your new CD has three years left. You're right back where you started, but you've made money on all three of your investments. When your two-year CD becomes mature, go out and buy a three-year CD. So it'll take you two years to accomplish this. At that point, you'll hold three separate Three-year CDs paying the highest interest rate you can get with insured certificates of deposit. 
But all of them will be maturing one year apart. So a third of your money will be accessible in one year, two-thirds will be accessible within two years, and three-thirds or the full amount would be accessible within three years. You've now maximized your interest rate and divided up your investment so that it's not all tied up for three years. That's just one way. You have to be creative. Rich people know how to be creative. They don't have all their money in derivatives in the stock market. They take a big chunk of money and they put it into things like I just described for you. All right. Look at variable annuities, not where all your money goes, but a portion of your money goes. A variable annuity might invest in bonds or stocks. All right. But what it does is, let's say you're married, and you say, if I die... You get the you get the money paid out as an insurance policy. If neither one of us die before we reach a maturity date, usually around 60 years of age, like an IRA, we can take all the money out and do whatever we want to with it. The insurance comes, though, this way. If we buy it at $50,000, and during the high point of the market, it goes up and becomes worth $80,000, but then the market crashes and now it's worth $40,000, but we're letting it ride because we're 30 years old and we know that it's going to come back, and it's one of those pieces, one of those pieces that we put away and ran the long-term strategy with. We just don't run the long-term strategy with everything. Then, let's say, I die. Well, my wife could take the money immediately with no tax consequences as an insurance payment, but she would get the highest value that the annuity ever had, the $85,000, even though right now it's only worth forty. That's assuming that these, you know, this derivative bubble doesn't pop. There's a lot of that in there. Right, but it's a vehicle. It's one way to ensure a portion of your wealth. Gold and silver, they're down right now. They're down right now because people are running to the dollar in spite of how shitty it is. We know that that can't last. Good time for the metals market. Again, not a financial advisor. This is not registered financial advice. We might as well be sitting in a bar, having a beer together, and we're bullshitting. But I'm telling you my instincts, my view right now of what you can do. That's all you can really do. But the big things aren't about money and investing. They're about setting up lifestyle. They're about making sure that you're able to provide for yourself on as little as possible because we may be going into a situation where that's exactly what you're going to be called on to do. Here's the good news. No people in the world are as ready to do that as Americans. I know that you look at your fellow American at sometimes and you just throw your hands up and you go, Ugh! And you think these people, if we turn the lights out, half of them might die. Half of them might. But half of them won't. Half of them are like you and you just don't know it. And some of them don't know it yet themselves. If you think about this show, the Survival Podcast, been on the air three and a half months. Over a thousand people listen to it every day. Growing like crazy. Why? Because there's a hunger for this stuff. Not because I'm great. Because you guys told other people about it. That's why. Because the hunger is there. To understand how can I take control of my life. To get off the credit card treadmill. To realize that debt is enslavement in prison. It's here in America more than it is anywhere else. It's not in Europe, folks. And if you're over there, I'm sorry. Maybe it is in your heart. But it's not in your nation the way it's here. Not being you know, bashing of your nation or anything like that. I'm just telling you the reality is that if you look around in Paris, for instance, you're going to see a lot less people who are self-sufficient than you will in Dallas, Texas. If you look around in London, England, you're going to see a lot less self-sufficiency than you will in Minneapolis, St. Paul. 
It's just the way that things are right now. So for Americans, it's a good thing. Even though it's also a bad thing because we can't, you know, we we know that this this monster may rear its ugly head at some point. So I hope that today, at least, you when you hear the derivatives are the real problem, now you'll know what it means. I th- I hope it makes you take what you're doing to protect yourself more serious. This is what if, if you've read Patriots: The Coming Collapse, and I have mixed emotions on that book. Some ways it's good, some ways it's bad. But the financial meltdown down that it describes is very realistic to what could occur. All right, now how society responds to it, uh, having a, a Red Dawn type war go on in the Western United States, all this other stuff. I think that's a little bit uh, fantasy fiction there. But the financial meltdown and the initial consequences, I think, are spot on. That is the type of thing that causes it. Not a subprime mortgage. Not just the Dow Industrials. This is, in the words again of Warren Buffett, a financial weapon of mass destruction. Please understand that. And please start working today to make yourself more self-sufficient and more secure so that if this does occur, you don't have to be one of the biggest victims of it. People today are looking around and they're going, you know what, Um, I feel like a victim here. My wife even said on some of the investments that we still had in the market that we lost some money with, because we had some there, I feel like we got victimized. I said, I don't. I knew better. I should have pulled that money, uh, excuse the, uh, the sirens here, part of being in a mobile studio is dealing with stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I said if we wanted to pull everything out, we could have. We left a little bit there. It, it took a hit. That's the way it is. Right? We're betting long term that those will come back. We've solidified everything else. Anything that's outside of tax deferred is absolutely out of stocks. So we're good to go. But if, if you didn't want to lose anything, we should have took any risk. Right? So you're not the victim in this once you're informed. Now you have to make a decision what you want to do. You need to decide, is it the time, even if my house is a little bit depressed in value, to sell it and move somewhere else? Or am I going to make what I have my homestead? Because just because it's suburban America doesn't mean it can't be a good homestead. Doesn't mean it can't be made to produce for you. Hell, I'm making my little house in Arlington a homestead. Now, I plan to sell it someday, and I'll give that homestead and that production to somebody else. Hopefully, they'll see the value in it, and they'll keep using it for what it is. And I have a place for my long-term lifestyle. But it may be time to step that up. It may be time to step a lot of things up. And, folks, I hope that this show helps you do that. We have a lot of exciting things coming. If this wasn't your kind of show, tune in tomorrow. We'll do something else uh, more practical, more down-to-earth tomorrow. I'm working on a show on backup generators. Not my area of expertise. I've had some help from some audience members trying to get some answers. When I do a show, I like to be able to speak authoritatively. I like to be able to tell you this is what to do, this is what not to do, this is what I think, this is why, and be able to explain it in a way that makes it easy to understand. Uh, I'm trying to dissect the uh, the generator market that way right now, and I'll try to put a show together like that for you soon and some other shows. And uh, Please tune into those shows and tune in tomorrow for another edition. Again, this has been Jack Spierker with the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough Makes or even if they don't where you can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent